0: Hello, readers. Coming up, it's my chat with Ben Milligan on By Water Beneath the Walls. First, I wanted to remind you to check out booksonpod.com. While there, you can sort through past shows by episode number, book title, author's last name, or sort by category. For instance, select the psychology or self-help category for episode number 76 With Jocko Willink on Discipline Equals Freedom.
1: Hey, what's up? This is Jocko Willink. I am the author of Discipline Equals Freedom Field Manual. I've been on Books on Pod with Trey, and we've been going into some details about the operating system that will make you better. Go get some.
0: Hello, readers. Benjamin H. Milligan served as a U.S. Navy SEAL from 2001 to 2009. He is a recipient of numerous awards, including the Bronze Star, and he's now a published author. His new book is called By Water Beneath the Walls, The Rise of the Navy Seals. Ben, thank you for the time. How are you doing today?
1: I'm great. How are you, Trey?
0: I'm doing great, thank you. So this book looks to answer the question, why does the Navy need commandos who can raid anywhere on the planet? When did you first wonder about this and what ultimately compelled you to write a book about it?
1: The question that I think occurred to me when I started shopping around to see which branch of service I was interested in joining, I knew that I wanted to have, I guess, for lack of a better term, a commando type experience, but I just couldn't, I was having a hard time wrapping my head around joining the Navy. Now I knew, I mean, I think everybody at the time knew what Navy SEALs were. I mean, we'd all seen the Charlie Sheen movie. I just didn't understand how you know a Navy unit was a unit that would be called upon to work pretty much anywhere. So, and it was a question that sort of stayed with me throughout my entire career. I spent a lot of time thinking about it while we were deployed in Iraq and we would support army units and support Marine Corps units. You know, both the army and the Marine Corps units seemed much more suited for a land type battle than the Navy did, but here we were. And oftentimes we were a bit further out ahead of the army and the Marine Corps units. So, I didn't really come back and start thinking about it as a potential topic for a book until 2011. In 2011, the extortion 1-7 tragedy happened, and I started to think, like, it really had never occurred to me, but, you know, here's a Navy unit that was operating in the mountains of Afghanistan, more than 600 miles away from the closest saltwater, and they were on their way to support Army Rangers. And in the course of going to these funerals, and I started to really, you know, the teams in the mountains of Afghanistan. And only a couple of months before, three months and four days prior to the extortion one seven tragedy, Navy SEALs had also been on the mission to uh, take out the the war on terror's greatest villain. So, and similar to the extortion one seven incident, you know, both you know, that event as well, more than almost 800 miles away from the saltwater. So You have to think, like, why are Navy units operating so far away from the water? Why are they being continually tasked by the country's policymakers to do these sorts of missions? It just didn't make sense. And I got kind of stuck on the topic. And, you know, before I knew it, I was I was obsessed.
0: Why was it also important for you to show how the Army and Marine Corps' shortcomings contributed to the SEAL's existence?
1: Because you couldn't understand it without it. And. I assumed the SEAL team myth is that the SEALs had been created sort of by the UDT frogmen they had just continually pushed the envelope of operations and I just believed that that was true as well and so when I started to go back and start and really start digging into the documents and I started to notice a couple of things and I was kind of keeping a timeline as I was working on the initial research and I was just putting big events down, like the creation of a unit, the disbandment of the unit, the major mission that the unit was involved in. And then I started to notice that each time that the army or the Marine Corps would create one of these commando type units, and then they would disband them, they would oftentimes leave the Navy in the lurch without a commando partner that they had started to grow accustomed to. And the Navy would just sort of fill in the gap, whether it was in World War II or Korea or Vietnam. And it was kind of like, you know, a lightning bolt. I, I, I realized you couldn't tell this story unless you understood the reason that the Army and the Marine Corps, and in some instances, the OSS and the CIA, had kind of dropped the ball.
0: And one of those first groups was the Marine Corps Raiders. How did they initially form and how did their major mission go before they were ultimately disbanded?
1: Yeah, that was, uh, so when you write a book, when you write a history book, you've got to decide a couple of things. You've got to decide where the book's going to start, where it's going to end, and how you're going to get, how you're going to connect those two points. The ending was sort of easy. I was able to decide, well, I want to write a book about how the seals became what they are today. And I knew that that had happened in Vietnam. I knew that the, the SEAL teams had started on this capture-kill commando cycle in Vietnam. So that was easy. At least I had an endpoint. Hmm. What I didn't have was anything else. So I, I was fishing around trying to figure out where this book would start or where you know this need by the Navy had originated. And so I you know I started to look in modern history. I knew that the American military didn't have a big commando history in the First World War. So I, I had a sense that it was going to start in World War II. So I really just started reading and started looking. And before I knew it, I was reading a ton about the Marine Corps Raiders, which were the country's first commando unit created even before the Army Rangers and the European theater. And I knew that the Raiders had been committed to a couple of different smaller type battles. They'd worked at Midway. They'd worked in Tulagi. They'd worked at Guadalcanal. But then this raid, I I discovered this raid. I mean, we'd all kind of, you know, we've all heard the term Macon Island or the Macon Island disaster, but I didn't really understand how important it was or pivotal or consequential to this history. And that raid, I mean, it had everything that I was trying to show in the book. And it was, I spent probably whenever I try to think like what the hardest chapter to write was, it's a hard question to answer, but Hmm. probably the hardest question was this first chapter, this first chapter on the Macon on Macon Island, because it had all these elements. It had, Demonstrated why the Navy wanted commandos. They wanted to be able to extend their power or extend their offensive ability further than their means would allow at the time. Remember, the Raiders were created right in the shadow of Pearl Harbor when the Pacific Fleet had been decimated. And they're also trying to spread the Japanese out as far as they can. So they've got, uh, they're trying to hold on to. Bottle Canal so they can maintain their supply lines to Australia. So they're trying to draw the Japanese attention away from this thing that's going on in the South Pacific. And they're trying to draw the Japanese attention up to the Central Pacific. So they decide they're going to have this raid, the Macon Island raid. So anyway, the Marine Corps, never one of the raiders. The Marine Corps, this entire time, they're trying to elevate the Marine Corps. So they don't really have to listen to the Navy anymore. The Marine Corps had been The Navy's adjunct utility force, you know, all through its history until the First World War. In the First World War, the Marine Corps becomes something it never thought it would be, and that's a parallel army. They are in competition now with the Army. They want everything that the Army has. They just want to have a a sort of maritime component to it. They don't really want to listen to their Navy masters anymore. They want their own theater of operations, and they're, as you watch this history progress, they're going to get it. So after the Macon Island, after Macon Island becomes a disaster, the Marines sort of say, well, we told you so. And the Navy is sort of left in the lurch. The Marine Corps disbands the Raiders and the Navy initiates this 30 year drive to create their own.
0: A buddy of mine was in the Marines several years back. And when I asked him about the Navy, because he, there's an obvious rivalry with the Army, but when I ask him about the Navy, he's like, oh yeah, we like those guys. They uh, get us from point A to point B so we can go kick some ass. Was that the <laughs> attitude amongst the Marines with the Navy back during World War II as well?
1: Yeah. And it it persists to this day. The Navy has always sort of been the um, junior partner when it comes to uh, combat operations or not combat operations, but offensive operations. The Navy's essential role in the U.S. military order of battle is one, maintain the, uh, the sea lanes, project naval power. And in times of combat, most combat occurs on land, the Navy's in charge of getting troops and supplies to shore. So, yeah, so the the Navy has always, not always, but in World War II, everything sort of changes, at least the way the Navy thinks about itself. It ceases to be, in World War II, a junior partner. The Navy becomes, at least in the Atlantic and especially in the Central Pacific, it's running their own theater. They are in charge. This is island warfare. They are running the campaigns. They're directing Army and Marine Corps units. Nothing can happen in the Pacific theater without the Navy. So the Navy elevates itself to what it wants to be, an equal partner in the U.S. military order of battle. And after World War II, the Navy's sort of trying to find itself again. When World War II comes to a close and Army planners, Air Force planners realize the capabilities of air power, both the strategic bombing and the uh, transportation capabilities of aircraft, they're starting to think, well, the Navy doesn't really need to exist. At least they don't need to be as critical of a partner in future combat. Well, Navy doesn't like that. So Navy starts to really look for ways that it can involve itself in defensive operations. So and that takes us all the way up to, you know, somebody like Arlie Burke and Arlie Burke is he has no interest uh, in a Navy that's not involved in combat operations. So,
0: yeah, before we get to Burke, I do need to ask about <laughs> Robert Buck Halperin. Who was he and what role did he play in the earliest iteration of a Navy Special Forces unit in World War Two?
1: Buck Halperin. He's one of my favorite characters in the book. I, I shouldn't say that. He's not one of my favorite characters. He's like Your characters are like your kids. You can't pick your favorites. But
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> Buck Halperin is he's too old for World, World War II, first of all. He's uh, 34 years old. He can't find a way to get into the Navy. He, his father contacts a, a local union boss to get him signed up and enlists in the Navy. He is a former football player. He, uh, he was a quarterback for Newt Rockney at Notre Dame. He went on to play for the Brooklyn Dodgers in New York. And what makes that so remarkable, at least his Notre Dame experience, is that he's Jewish. But he joins the Navy, sort of gets hoodwinked into the Navy. He, Because he's a football player, he gets enlisted into uh, Gene Tunney's physical fitness regime, which is a course to upgrade the newly enlisted sailors to give, give them some sort of physical fitness. So he basically just is instructing calisthenics until there's a call for naval commandos and he volunteers, finds himself hoodwinked again, winds up in uh, Solomon's Island in the Chesapeake Bay where he learns how to pilot landing craft and he becomes one of the first scout boat officers to uh, really get involved in the Scout and Raider program. And the Scout and Raiders are this joint Army-Navy unit that is tasked with identifying beaches for the landing forces. And the Navy component of that, they're really just supposed to drive, like you were saying before, they're they're just supposed to drive the Army commandos to shore. So the Army commandos go find the beach exits so the tanks and the jeep can get through. And then they signal the landing force, this is the beach you want to land at. That was the breakdown of how it was supposed to be, and North Africa happens, and Buck Halpern, well, he's not the kind of guy that is going to be able to corral out to sea. So after he does his uh, his beach marking mission out at sea, he goes in to support the troops, and he's actually the first member of Naval Special Warfare to go ashore. And when he's on shore, on that first day, he manages to capture two French soldiers. <laughs>
0: Wow, how about that? But his his
1: story continues, and he's a participant in every major amphibious landing that happens in the uh, European Theater of Operations, everything in Africa, Italy. He's one of the lead scout boat officers in the Utah beach landings. And then from there, he gets sent to China, where he ends up leading Chinese guerrillas from horseback for the final phase of the war. He's a fascinating
0: character. Yes, he is. And another fascinating character... Ben is a dude named draper kaufman who was he and why is he perhaps a guy who can stake the claim to being the godfather of hell week which is obviously something very well known within and out of navy seal circles
1: yeah draper kaufman is maybe the strangest guy in the book He's just a peculiar guy. He's a Navy legacy. His father's a famous destroyer skipper in World War II. He's a famous naval admiral. But he had all Draper wants to do growing up is be a destroyer skipper like his old man. But he graduates the academy in the mid-30s right at the time that there's really no place for a lot of these naval academy graduates to go. And so he gets kicked out of the Navy on the day he graduates because of his eyesight. So when World War II kicks off, he knows that he's not going to be allowed back in the Navy. So he enlists himself in a French ambulance unit, just like Hemingway did back in the First World War, finds himself in the worst combat that he can imagine on the Western Front as the German juggernaut steamrolling toward Paris, gets himself captured, spends some time as a POW. And when he's finally released from a prisoner of war camp, the Germans make him sign a document saying that he won't ever take arms up again against the German empire.
0: Hmm.
1: Of course he signs it and then jumps on a, uh, uh, I think it's a Portuguese freighter going to uh, London and enlists himself in the uh, Royal Navy (laughs) because the U S military is not, the U S is not uh, engaged in the war at that point. And he he enlists himself uh, in the British Navy. If it's not the day of, it might be the, you know, in the week of right when the blitz starts. So he finds himself in the, French army, right when the war starts, he finds himself in the British Navy when the war starts and the Germans are bombing London. And he volunteers for the bomb demolition unit and spends the next year of his life doing nothing but disarming German bombs and becomes an absolute expert at it. He becomes the best American at this business of bomb disposal. So when he finally comes home for a breather, his dad's friend <laughs> forces him back into the American Navy. And next thing he knows, he's off to uh, create a bomb unit down in uh, Fort Pierce. But when he gets to Fort Pierce, to answer your question, he realizes he has very, very little time. He's got to train up a unit to be able to land on the Hitler's Atlantic Wall and demolish all of these obstacles that, uh, that Rommel's creating. That's his assignment. So he doesn't have a ton of time. So he's looking for some sort of experience to create a unit that will be able to handle combat. Nobody in the American military knows what combat is like better than Draper Kaufman at that point. He's been in the German or he's been in the French army, he's been in the Royal Navy. He has seen everything. So when he wants to create this experience, he walks down the beach to where the scouts and raiders, Halpern's crew is. He finds the army commander. He looks at their conditioning curriculum, which is an eight-week-long program, and he says, okay, I want to do this. I would like you guys to train up my guys, but I want you to compress this eight-week course into five days, because that's all, that's all the time I have. And of course, the scouts and raiders instructors, they've never heard anything like this. Nobody's ever pushed the boundaries of uh, physical endurance that far. But it's Draper Kaufman. He's already been awarded a Navy Cross. He's a hero of the French Army, the hero of the British Army. Nobody can say no to Draper. Plus, his dad's an admiral. So they do it, and they create this one week, incredibly intense training, and uh, it's been with uh, the Navy ever since.
0: Was the high caliber of soldiers discovered through Hell Week obvious when they shifted their efforts to the battlefield, even in its earliest days?
1: I don't think it was. I don't think they knew what they had until the, the experience of Omaha Beach. If Draper hadn't continued to stay in the program, at least until they were getting close to that point, I think Hell Week would have been gotten rid of, but... Because the NCDUs that managed to knock out all of those obstacles at Omaha had been graduates of Draper's program, the Navy, I think, was pretty loath to get rid of something that worked. And so they kept it.
0: So this group was a sort of unsung heroes of D-Day then?
1: Oh, absolutely. The The NCDUs, they suffered some of the, the highest casualty rates of the entire day, and they were one of only three units to be awarded the presidential unit citation.
0: You've referenced this group a couple of times, but how did underwater demolition teams come to be?
1: Everybody thinks that the UDTs are created because of Tarawa, because they've got to deal with this problem of the coral. At the Battle of Tarawa, the most significant aspect of that battle is uh, how the Marines are sort of cut off from their support elements in the Navy, particularly the LCVPs or the Higgins boats. The Higgins boats can't get over the coral. So the only way that the fleet... Can support the Marines ashore at Tarawa is by using the LVTs, which is a sort of an amphibious tractor. It's really slow. The Navy doesn't like using them. They take, they take up a ton of space on ships. They're really slow. They delay everything from fire support to naval gunfire. So the Navy would much rather use Higgins boats. They're really fast in the water and they they can carry more more troops, uh, and they're easier easier to store. The Marine Corps' plan to deal with the coral is just have more LVTs, but the Navy doesn't really want to do that. Navy would much rather just destroy the coral. So the person who really wants to do this the most is Kelly Turner, who is the amphibious commander. uh, He's the fifth amphibious force commander, and he really doesn't like going cap in hand to the Marine Corps. He is probably the most aggressive person I come across in, in the book, or at least the most aggressive person I researched in the book he is absolutely relentless doesn't feel like he should have to ask the marine corps for anything he's the type of guy who thinks the marine corps belongs to him they actually have to create a policy that separates the uh, marine corps from the navy just to deal with his personality because they can't <laughs> they, they can't figure out a way to get him to abide by certain protocols he's just that, that's the kind of guy he is so once that is in place he doesn't want the, uh, to let the Marine Corps deal with the coral the way they want to deal with it. He wants to deal with it the way he wants to deal with it. First, by finding it, and he needs reconnaissance troops that can find it, and two, by blowing it up. So when everybody talks about Draper Kaufman as being the father of the UDT, he's not. He, he might be the father of Hell Week, but he's uh, he's not the father of UDT. There's one person who's a, the father of the UDT, and that is Kelly Turner.
0: Hmm. Marines look at Iwo Jima as one of, if not the most important battle in their history, but how did the UDTs contribute here too?
1: By that point in the Pacific War, the UDTs have become an, an indispensable component of all amphibious operations. So indispensable that the Marine Corps is even loaning I think 20 swimmers per UDT. I think I can't remember how many UDTs they use at uh, EO. I think it's five different UDTs and a UDT consists of a hundred swimmers. So there's a hundred or uh, I think in, in the e- Iwo Jima, UDTs. There's something like 80 Navy swimmers and 20 Marine Corps swimmers. That's how important that they are. They are uh, at that point in the war, and not only are they that important that the Marine Corps is willing to give up uh, some of its best troops as swimmers, but they're so important that the Navy is willing to support their reconnaissance with an entire, a massive flotilla of support ships to do it. And while the number of casualties that the swimmers take in that battle is relatively low, the number of sailors that are killed uh, just in Driving their ships up to get close to the action is almost as bad as what the NCDU's face at Normandy. It's quite high. Numerous ships are sunk. I think Draper Kaufman, who was leading the swimmers, he was in command of the swimmers. He wasn't in the water himself at that point, but he transfers from three different ships because you know, these ships keep getting sunk out from under him.
0: What happened to Kaufman after the war?
1: Kaufman gets his dream. He Kaufman had always wanted to be a skipper, just like his father. His eyesight had uh, precluded him from doing that, but by the end, he gets exactly what he wants. When he comes back from uh, the Pacific theater, he's broken. Nobody's given as much in the war as he has. He's he's been at this, you know, almost two years longer than most American servicemen, just by, by virtue of the fact that he was with the French and British first. So when he comes back, I mean, I think his fighting weight is right around 160, 65 pounds. But when, when he finally comes home to Hawaii, or comes back to San Diego to be with his wife and daughter, I think he's somewhere around 120 pounds. Wow, Physically wrecked. We call it post-traumatic stress now, but I mean, he, he had that in, in buckets. But as soon as he, he comes back, he gets put in charge of sort of disentangling all of the administrative headaches that the UDTs had accrued in their four years of war, or excuse me, about, about four years, but three years of war. And uh, he hates it. Uh, All he wants to do is get back to doing something meaningful, get back to doing something that he finds relevancy. I think he's back home with his wife and daughter for a couple of months before he's begging commanders to join them out in the fleet.
0: Hmm.
1: He's an interesting guy, but he ends up sort of disassociating himself from all of his special warfare activities afterwards. He, he sort of loses interest in it. He wants to be in the fleet. He wants to be in command of ships. I think the greatest thing he does for the Navy is the older he gets, he does begin to take an interest in uh, uh, unconventional units again. But I think the best thing that he does is he integrates the U.S. Naval Academy. He's a superintendent there for three years. So, and. Who can argue with him? I mean, he's uh, one of the greatest World War II heroes that the Navy had.
0: And as you briefly mentioned earlier, Halperin becomes the first ground force commander in the history of naval special warfare in late 1944. What impact did he have on this group in this role?
1: I think the China section in the book is one of the most surprising parts of it. I I, I keep getting texts from friends and family about that section in particular because you're, nobody you're,
0: you're talking about the failed raid of in Wusu?
1: Not exactly that, but just the fact that the navy is in China at all. Mm. The navy really has no business being in China. I mean, I I say I'll I'll say it time and time again, the navy has no business having the navy seals. I'm glad that they do. I think it's the I, I think that we should uh, have them for a hundred more years, but the one of the the subtitle that I had for the book when I initially started writing on it or uh, trying to come up with it was "By Water Beneath the Walls: The Origin Story of the Navy SEALs, a Unit That Should Not Exist." <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm not I'm not sure it was a bit of a clunky title, but you could equally have a similar title for the Navy's presence in China in World War II, when World War II starts. Admiral King, who is Next to Kelly Turner, the most aggressive uh, head of the Navy that we've ever had, he's trying to just get the Navy into everything. He wants to attack everywhere with everything. And he sees this, this huge potential in China. He wants weather stations to be able to tell his fleet what's coming out of Siberia as far as weather. He wants beaches scouted in China as potential offloading points for the eventual invasion of Japan. So he sends Mary Miles or Milton Miles, everybody calls him Mary, to China. Mary doesn't want to go. Mary has you know, spent a lot of his time in China, but Mary, like everybody else in the fleet, he wants command of a ship to get vengeance for Pearl Harbor. King says, No, Miles, you're going. So what happens is Miles uh, does something that the OSS and Bill Donovan had a real hard time with. He becomes very close to Tai Lee, who is Chiang Kai-shek's chief of uh, security. He's a very shady character, but it gets along with Mary Miles great. And next thing uh, Mary Miles knows, he's being offered command of a hundred thousand man Chinese guerrilla army. And Mary knows how unseemly this is for a admiral to be in charge of soldiers, Uh, leading a guerrilla war on land, but Mary takes it. (laughs) Spends the next several months coming up with all of the agreements to put it in writing and make it official. And then for the, the rest of the war, he creates camps all through China to tie the Japanese down everywhere he can and because these are, you know, mostly sailor advisors that he has, he has to educate the uh, the Chinese guerrillas and, you know, tactics and shooting. And you know, Navy sailors don't really know how to do that, so he gets a handful of Marines. So in most instances, all of his camps are run by Marines. He's got, you know, each Marine commander uh, of a camp will have, uh, and this is general, this is not not specific, but most uh, in most instances, these Marine commanders they would have half a dozen or a dozen sailors to lead the, the Chinese guerrillas under them or, or train the Chinese guerrillas. The most significant camp that I write about in the book is camp six, which is the only camp run by one of the Navy's scouts and raiders. And like you said, that is Buck Halpern. Buck Halpern is the only person that the Marines in these camps will follow because he's got you know so much combat experience himself. Plus he's been going to school after school and teaching schools himself about commando type operations. So even though he's a sailor, he knows land warfare. So Mary Miles puts him in one of the most important camps. It's uh, close to the coast and Halpern spends eight months, nine months doing nothing but sending raiders out into the field. And then he does the first ship attack. He sends swimmers to blow up a, uh, a Japanese freighter. He attempts to seize an island off Wusu like you're talking about. And when the war looks like it's about to uh, be over and the Japanese panic they start trying to flee to the coast Halprin puts a force together and harasses the Japanese for uh, for 30 days and most of that harassment is on horseback he is he is a ground force commander and he is leading his men into battle from a horse <laughs> a sailor <laughs> so
0: he is an absolute madman and unfortunately that boils to a head. With yeah. the and nobody uh, knows
1: about him he and i I mean i walk i mean I, I you know we walk around naval special warfare and you see buildings that are named after people, and absolutely all the all the buildings that are there have been named after you know great people like phil Bucklow and and others. but there should be a building named after Halpern.
0: why do you think that is?
1: Oh, no, I think it's, you know, I don't think a lot of people have uh, spent a lot of time looking at this history. I think most folks have been satisfied with that myth, the myth that, you know, we sort of created ourselves. And in some sense, we did. But in other senses, we, you know, we have a lot of people that we owe our heritage to. And it's not just sailors, or it's not just seals, but uh, there's fleet sailors that we, uh, we should be honoring and, uh, and army rangers and green berets. There's a lot of folks that if it weren't for them, the SEAL teams would not exist.
0: Most of the U.S. commando units were disbanded after World War II. How did the UDTs avoid this fate, and how did Korea help to reignite this group?
1: You're right. The war ends in August. By December, I think even the Army Rangers, the 6th Army Rangers, which is the last commando unit in the U.S. military, even they're disbanded. So the military has no commandos at that point. The only semi-unconventional unit left are the UDTs. Prior to the invasions of Japan, the Navy had anticipated that it would need more than 1,000 swimmers, and they were planning on something like 4,000 swimmers. And So they're planning for 40 different underwater demolition teams there's no comparison in World War II to the height that the UDTs arrive at by the end. They're so indispensable. The Navy won't land without them. So that's the reason that they are kept around. So when World War II ends, the Navy decides they're going to keep four UDTs, be half-sized teams. So instead of the typical 100-man size UDT, they're going to be 50-man UDTs. But the Navy doesn't know how to land without them. They've become so reliant on them to, to scout the beaches and to blow up the obstacles in their path. But there's all this stuff that happens uh, in between World War II and Korea. The, like I said before, there's a clamoring for resources. The Air Force has created The Army planners, the Secretary of Defense really doesn't see much need for the Navy. They're trying to consolidate as much as they can, get rid of redundancies especially. And if you have this incredible capacity or incredible transport capacity that the Air Air Force is advertising, then why do you need the Navy? And if you have those things, why do you need to transfer all of these supplies from ship to shore? So it's really the Navy is in a position where they think that they are potentially on the outs. They think that their relevance in future wars is waning. So when it comes to Korea, wars are terrible, but wars are also capable of demonstrating the relevance of different units. And when Korea happens, there is no battlefield on the planet except for the ones that the the Navy just fought in the Pacific theater that is better suited for the Navy than, than the Korean peninsula. The way the Korean peninsula is just sort of shaped, it pushes all the roads towards the edges of that peninsula. So everything, well, almost everything is in reach of a naval gun. So not only does the Navy find relevance in uh, just the fact that it can blast everything on the, or everything relevant on, uh, on the Korean mainland, but now all of the amphibious capacity that the the Navy has for landing ships, bringing troops ashore, it, is showcased in Korea and nowhere better than in the uh, the Incheon campaign. Prior to that, prior to MacArthur's genius stroke to cut the enemy's knees out from under him in Incheon, I don't think that the Navy would have, or definitely wouldn't have uh, gone away, but the offensive capacity of the Navy would have been checked. So when Incheon happens, the Navy is put back on top. So
0: The Army Rangers were reborn for the Korean War. Why were they disbanded just nine months later?
1: (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I do know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's one of the toughest ones for me to even wrap my head around. I really liked researching and writing all of my chapters about Army Special Operations. I hope that comes through in the book. But one of the most frustrating things about writing those chapters is you see what these soldiers do you see the courage they have and just the lengths that they're willing to go and the long shot raids that they undertake? And you want to see them, you're rooting for them in each of these chapters. You want to see their unit succeed and you want to see them made a permanent fixture in the army's order of battle. And in every instance, the army pulls the rug out from under them. <laughs> and nowhere is that more painful than in the Korean theater. The army knows that it needs a raiding capacity or a commando capacity, they've gotten kicked all the way down to the pusan perimeter they want to do the same thing that the north korean army is doing to them they need units that can range ashore that can strike from behind being comfortable outnumbered and they don't have anything like that after world war ii the the u.s army it retracts both in size and skill so they they have to create rangers as quickly as possible and they do they create rangers both in korea and back in the states and they get them there relatively quickly and they do some impressive operations, but just like in World War II, they don't put the thought into how to use these units and they attach them to regular inf- infantry divisions and the infantry commanders just treat them like infantry and they use them no different than they would their regular soldiers. And that's a recipe for disaster. And almost every instance, these units get put through the meat grinder and so when it's time to disband them, there's not much to disband. The one instance where they they do have an opportunity to really show how capable a group of army commandos could be, they send them on a penetration raid. Actually, the Navy asked for a penetration raid, the Virginia One raid, to bomb a tunnel in the Korean mainland. It ends in predictable disaster, but it produces some of the best stories of the war and one of the best characters, I think, of the entire book.
0: Okay, so you just shared the story of Mary Miles. I also was going to ask you about Corporal Martin R. Watson. Who was he, and what did he go through after this disastrous affair as a POW in Korea? Yeah,
1: Martin, he is—he's uh, incomparable. He is. <laughs> uh, there's really nobody like him. Finding a character like him is—you're uh, striking gold. So, uh, Martin Watson, he is a. At the time of Korea, he's a corporal. You're absolutely right, but he had been in World War II. He had enlisted when he was 18 years old. Uh, he's a big guy, uh, so he he looks like uh, you know the biggest guy on the football team. Um, his legs are so big, reportedly, that he couldn't fit into store bought swim trunks. Uh, but he had grown up in uh, Hartford, Connecticut, in a uh, in an immigrant community. So he uh, not only was he a big kid, uh, but he spoke uh german and french um so he could he was you know uh, he was great to have in a ranger unit uh unfortunately he's captured uh at the battle of cisterna in world war ii and he spends the rest of the war in a german uh, prisoner of war camp he tries to escape so many times uh the german uh guards they they nickname him the haas for rabbit (laughs) um but when he comes back, uh, he had been sort of a ne'er do well before he uh, ever had uh, joined the uh, uh, the army in World War II. Uh, numerous uh, uh, arrests for fighting, and in the period between um, uh, the Korean War, or excuse me, the the. the Uh, his release from captivity in World War II and his entrance back into the army in the Korean War, he's arrested some 76 times by the Connecticut police for various offenses. And I managed to find uh, this document in all of his POW POW report. or his, uh, his end of uh, capture report, which is um, one of the one of the coolest documents that I found when researching this book. I had uh, I I had I had a sense that there was a uh, a post captivity POW report, and I had uh, contacted the National Archives and I had put in a uh, um, a request um, for his report. And I knew these reports to be around one to two pages. The ones that I had seen in the past. Uh, so that was my expectations. They did find one for him and they said, well, uh, you'll have to come here and get it. We can't scan it for you. It's a, you know, 750 pages. Well, I thought they were talking about, you know, all the Korean POW reports. So I was like, "Well, I just take, take his pages and scan them and send them. They were, we went back and forth on email several, you know, a couple of times. And I said, forget it. I'll just, next time I'm at the archives, I'll get it. So at the end of a long research day, uh i remembered oh they have this report so i'll you know i'm, I'm tired uh you know the 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 archive was closing soon. Uh, I didn't have a ton of time to copy, but I figured I'll ask for the you know the report so I can find his pages. They bring out literally 750 pages of documents from his uh, from his service, both uh, uh, his all of his arrest reports <laughs> from his time at Hartford, and then his uh, uh, what what little information they had about the Virginia One Raid, and then all of his uh, his uh, captivity, uh, all the statements taken by his fellow POWs.
0: How many pages was that?
1: Seven hundred fifty pages.
0: Well, I know you said seven fifty for the whole thing. How many was the POW experience?
1: Oh uh, well, it's sort of dis- it was hard to disentangle it because okay. everything was. Uh, I, I haven't counted that, but I mean, gotcha.
0: the,
1: At least at least seven hundred pages. Oh my um,
0: gosh!
1: And and these are statements that other prisoners uh, made about him. And <laughs> I mean, I I've not uh, you know uh, there there's there's several characters in this book who have. Uh, um, been short shrifted by the U.S. military as far as their awards go. And uh, um, if I was going to write a congressman about you know who, uh, who should uh, have their record uh, reassessed uh, for uh, various uh, upgrades, um, Martin Watson would be at the top. I think from his, just from his POW experience, I think he was uh, submitted for a Bronze Star, which is just ridiculous. Yes, I... uh, I've never come across anybody more deserving of the Medal of Honor
0: agreed with that and gosh if nothing else hollywood which is out of ideas at this point they have a couple of new guys that they need to put some focus into based on your book now
1: well i hope so i mean that would be really neat i mean these characters uh yeah uh that's probably the most exciting thing about this whole process is introducing you know some of these americans that have just been forgotten about to uh, uh to the world uh You know, Buck Halpern and Martin Watson and Draper Kaufman and Mary Miles and, you know, uh, the list goes on. But, yeah, these these are real characters.
0: All right. Fast forwarding a little bit beyond North Korea and unfortunately, very much less amusing than the Martin R. Watson story. Naval Special Forces (laughs) teamed up with the CIA to invade Cuba in mid-April of 1961. Why did this mission initially go as sideways as it did?
1: Oh boy, I don't. <laughs> uh, people are going to be talking about that for a lot longer than we have. But yeah. I, um, I think you'd probably have to, you know, place the blame. Um, I come, I come from the Navy, so the Navy has a very, uh, um, uh, likes to place uh, blame on on leadership. So I, I think you have to place blame where uh, with, with President Kennedy. Um,
0: you're, 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 you're you're not the first to say that by the way. No,
1: I know. I'm not the first to say that everybody, you know, in the aftermath, I mean, to to Kennedy's credit, I mean, he, um, um, he learns from it. Um, but he, you know, he, he made a concerted effort to figure out what happened. I think he, he probably knew that it was his fault.
0: Well, and I think his fault after the initial failings was that he didn't step forward and just engage in that moment. He was so, he was so gung ho in making sure that the U S avoided some sort of official conflict because things were, were happening in a covert manner that unfortunately it left a lot of guys hung out to dry and, and cost lives in the process.
1: Oh, absolutely. It did. Uh, and, and, and died miserable deaths too. Yeah. Uh, a, a lot of these guys were not, not just, uh, cut loose, but, uh, executed, suffocated, uh, barbaric. Um, but yeah, absolutely. Uh, Yep, the, the fault is Kennedy's, but um, you, you get a lot, you, you learn a lot uh, out of the experience, and you, and you see the Navy uh, very, very quickly at that point really edging into uh, uh, limited war and unconventional operations. Um, the Navy's not the first to identify it. Probably the first to identify the potential of limited war is the Army. Um,
0: And by limited uh, war, you mean guerrilla guerrilla warriors that are uh, essentially special forces who are doing things in a covert manner.
1: Right. So the the army comes out of the Korean War experience um, and they they realize that uh, uh, technology training um, the uh, overwhelming um, economic power of the West is not going to be enough uh, to confront uh, communism, particularly in the third world. So The army comes out and they're they're committed to um uh uh stiffening the backs of uh of all of these third world countries uh at least if not to lead them at least to deny them to the communists. So uh the armies plan to do that is the special forces or the uh or what ultimately uh, Kennedy turns into the Green Berets. Um the Navy though, and you see it in the Bay of Pigs, the Navy is is, is, is uh, because they're being led by uh, Arleigh Burke, the most aggressive CNO, uh, next Admiral King that uh, the Navy's ever had. Um, the Navy is uh, actively looking for ways to involve itself in this type of uh, conflict. So when you have the Bay of Pigs invasion, and you have the Bay of Pigs, uh, the you know Bay of Pigs is a bay uh, in Cuba, uh, which is you know connected to water, which is connected to Navy ships, which is connected to Navy aircraft, and Arleigh Burke is doing, he's doing everything he can to convince President Kennedy to uh, let the Navy uh, intervene. Um, Even after the battle, he's pushing uh, Navy ships to support the rescue effort. Um, And and while that's happening, Navy planners are realizing uh, the need that they have for unconventional operatives that can go ashore, uh, that can do all sorts of missions ashore, and then Pull back to the sea, so uh, not that. Uh, so even before Bay of Pigs, Arlie Burke and and Navy planners are thinking about uh, the creation of this unit. After the Bay of Pigs, it's put into you know uh, warp speed.
0: So the failure. In Cuba leads to the Navy putting a more concerted effort into organizing a special forces unit that would eventually be called the SEALs. Whose idea was it to actually create the SEALs?
1: Well, nobody knows. I mean, there the, a couple of times the trail goes a bit cold, um, at least on the uh, uh, when it comes to the documents. I, I've spent a lot of time rooting around archives looking for whatever uh, whatever fingerprints I can find. Uh, best as I can tell. Uh, It's Arlie Burke. I mean, he's the one, he's the first person uh, who tasks uh, his subordinates to start thinking about this capability, to start creating a unit similar, uh, not necessarily in its mission, but similar in character to the Army Special Forces. And he's already, uh, he's asking, you know, how many uh, uh, how many naval officers, how many sailors do we have uh, survivors uh, that are still in uh, the service from World War II that either served in the scouts and raiders or underwater demolition, or that have uh, uh, gone through the army special warfare course. He wants to know them. He wants to know them by name. He wants to know uh, if we should start setting up our own schools to do this. Um, and through uh, you can just sort of see, you know, when you look, when you have all the documents in front of you and they're going back and forth, uh, all of, uh, they're all connected to him. And you can even see little scratches that he makes on, uh, on the paper with his, with his pen, um, uh, you know, to, uh, to his subordinates. Um, he had a very active interest in this, uh, in this capability. Unfortunately, he doesn't, uh, He he's the longest serving uh, CNO that we've ever had longest serving by two years. He, he serves as CNO for six years, uh, for six years. Um, and, uh, he, but he, uh, his, he leaves the Navy, uh, six months prior to the, uh, the SEAL teams actually being established. And it's, it's, it's almost, a it almost didn't happen to his replacement. Um, almost tries to pull the reins back on the whole idea it's like well, why can't we have the marines do this i mean this is what the marines for which isn't the worst idea i mean i mean and he's just as confused by the rest of us I mean, we have a military apparatus that has three separate air forces uh two separate armies and navies and one of those armies actually works for one of the navies which is the marine corps so not only you know was did you know the the Navy had this association with the Marines, but now the Navy is trying to you know justify the creation of a second army <laughs> under its uh, uh, under its control. So you know, I suppose it's not totally his fault, but Arlie Burke doesn't care. Arlie Burke wants it, so Arleigh Burke gets it.
0: And they do become official on January first, nineteen sixty-two. Initially, there were two teams created: one on the East Coast, and the other on the West Coast. Were the qualities that seals are known for today—the organization, the reliability, that every man is a leader attitude—were those things evident with the first seal teams?
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. They they uh, they come right out of the UDTs. They 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 pull the uh, they they look around the UDTs, uh, the existing UDTs for uh, uh, the best uh, the best um, demolition or the best frogmen they can they can find, and they. Uh, Uh, they put them in the, uh, the first two SEAL teams. Uh, So, uh, and uh, the UDTs were already the, the fleets, um, you know, go anywhere, do anything, utility force. They, they hadn't just, um, you know, uh, kept themselves to doing uh, just underwater uh, demolition reconnaissance. They had uh, any place the Navy had sent them. They had, uh, they had adapted and they had figured out how to do it. So, um when they put these first two uh, seal teams together and then they pull the first recruits to the seal teams from the udts i mean they had to uh, have some idea of what they were going to what they were going to get i mean they didn't have an exact mission uh for them they didn't the I mean, navy planners sort of had an outline of what they wanted these teams to become uh they wanted them to be coastal raiders uh that was evident they wanted them to be able to uh train indigenous forces um which the udt were already doing um but to put that much talent uh, in, you know, such proximity to each other, and then to send that talent around the military uh, to all these various schools, uh, the most important school uh, being Ranger School, and then to bring them all back together, you had to expect that these uh, SEAL teams were going to become something special pretty
0: quickly. You just mentioned a word that is very important when talking about the SEALs: adapted. The SEALs are and always have been experts at adaptation. And this was certainly on display when they really cemented their existence with what they were doing in Vietnam during that war. What are some of the ways that they had to adapt in Vietnam?
1: <laughs> Vietnam is, uh, yeah, that's, that's where it all happens. Uh, Vietnam is, uh, it's not the war that, uh, they wanted. Uh, so the, you know, like, like everybody, we always prepare for the last war we fought, um, and the seals, as they're becoming the seals, they're they're anticipating being coastal raiders like uh, some of the UDTs that experienced in the uh, the Korean War, and they uh, they they want to do uh, you know roughly the same thing. They want to uh, raid command posts. Uh, they want to take out radar dishes. Uh, they want to uh, you know like they just they want to be uh, maritime rangers, so to speak. Um, <clears throat> Uh, but when they get to Vietnam, uh, and they, you know, the they put them uh, for their first operational uh, assignment. They send them to the the Rung Sat Special Zone, which is a, uh, an area just to the south and east of Saigon, which is uh, known for uh, being sort of a hideout for uh, uh, guerrillas uh, or the Viet Cong. That but they get there, and uh, all of the command posts that they'd been training to uh, to raid and radar dishes they'd been expecting to explode. They're not there. <laughs> yeah. There's nothing to, there's, uh, they, they have no, they have no idea where to go. They, there's no, there's none of the targets that they've been uh, preparing uh, to go after. And so the first commander uh, of the, uh, of the sealed detachment there, um, he basically tells his men to stand down. He, he starts going into Saigon. He hooks up with a, uh, a local nurse and uh, the rest of his guys start doing the same thing. Uh, they get involved in uh, a couple of uh, liberty incidents um, that, uh, uh, that, you know, they raise, uh, raise the SEALs profile uh, in, a, in a bad way and they're ready to kick them. Uh, naval leadership is ready to kick them out of the country. And if it's not for uh, the, um, uh, the influence of, uh, of Phil Bucklew, uh, the, the uh, World War II uh, scout and raider, uh, himself, uh, They probably would have been. Uh, but Phil Buckler gets on the phone with the commander of uh, naval forces in Vietnam and says, we're just going to fix the leadership. And uh, uh, he replaces him, uh, sends in Maynard Wires uh, to take over. And um, Maynard gets there and Maynard says, well, this isn't the war we want, but this is the war we have. And failure is not an option. We're going to figure this out. And they do. And they start going out every night, whether they want to or not. Uh, it's miserable. It's wet. They're cold. Uh, there's leeches everywhere. Uh, they just start setting uh, riverside ambushes and start patrolling to contact. And before long, they start to learn. They start. And they do exactly what frogmen do. They start adapting. Uh, but it does. They're, they're they're not there yet. I mean, there's there's more to the story.
0: <clears throat> what's what's the, the more, rest of the what, story? What's what's the more part? <laughs>
1: Well, the more part doesn't, doesn't really happen until they, uh, their, their battle space changes. So the Navy planners, they get a sense that these guys uh, could be more useful outside of the Rungsat Special Zone. Now, there's nobody that lives in the Rungsat Special Zone, and uh, it's not a particularly target-rich environment, or it's not a, uh, an enemy uh, hub, but there's not a lot of enemy there. There's some enemy there, and they're, they're mining waterways and everything like that, but the real enemy... Uh, the the place where um, the, the enemy really hiding among the population is in the Mekong Delta. The Mekong Delta is uh, it's the breadbasket of Vietnam. Uh, it's got uh, you know major you know femoral artery type rivers that are going through it that are supplying the rest of the country, um, and uh, it's where the bulk of the Vietnamese uh, population lives. It's the lowlands. It's uh, it's the farming communities, um, and. If the enemy is hiding among the people, that's where the enemy's hiding. So when the SEALs finally uh get themselves assigned to the Mekong Delta, they happen to get assigned on the exact same day uh that the army, uh, ninth division is moving in. And when they show up, uh, they have no agreements with the army to start operating, they have no authority to go ashore. So the first uh two weeks of, uh, of them being in country they, they are stuck on their boats. Uh, all they're doing is uh, you know uh, speeding up and down the rivers, uh, doing whatever they can to help out but they're, they can't even, they can't really do anything. And it's not until uh, they, their, their commander uh, uh, gets some agreement signed with the 9th, uh, 9th Infantry Division are they allowed to go ashore? Um, uh, but then that's when they, they really start to figure it out. So they uh, they start to lean on their ability to to adapt and they uh, they find uh, ways to start uh, uh, getting information on where the enemy is hiding. And uh, and, um, yeah, they they get really good at it.
0: (laughs) The first academic study of SEALs was published in March of 1969 by the Rand Corporation under the title, the Navy SEAL Commandos, A Case Study of Military Decision-Making and Organizational Change. What did this paper find?
1: That paper, so one of the advantages that you have um, in taking 10 years to write a book is that you find a lot of stuff. <laughs> you find a lot of a lot of material. And that, uh, I had found that um document when I went to the UDT Seal Museum, which is in Fort Pierce. They have an archive down there. And I had found that when I was uh, looking through uh, World War II stuff. So I had found that in the early days of my research. I had sort of, I'd read it, I'd, uh, I'd done some underlining on it, but I hadn't really uh, paid too much attention to it. I, I had a vague idea that the author's name was uh, Francis West. That's all, that's really all I knew. I didn't, I hadn't dug into that, uh, that report very much. It wasn't for several years later in my research that something just clicked in my head, and I realized Francis West is Bing West, Bing West, the author, who's I've I've read his books. I mean, I knew I, I've known who Bing West was for years. I, he's he, he's you know famous. Anyway, he he uh, he was a young. He'd recently uh, left the Marine Corps. He'd been a force recon marine in Vietnam and he was just as perplexed as i was you know in 2011 you know trying to understand why a navy unit had become this commando force when the army and the marine corps had never been able to field anything similar so he writes this report uh sends it up to rand i don't know what happens with it but it's uh, it, it it was it was perfect it it, it answered it doesn't answer questions it really just asks a series of questions um but it's uh yeah it, it's uh I found it, uh, you know, immensely helpful, at least helpful and it uh, clarified, you know, what, you know, the, the issues that I was thinking about. Um, and not only that, but, uh, he, he was, you know, I reached out to him and, uh, talked to him about it and he gave me you know, great information, gave me great context around, you know, how he'd written the report. He'd spent, uh, I think three weeks or so in the rung Sat uh, with seal team one. And then he'd spent another three weeks with seal team two in the Mekong Delta, um, running around and, uh, he went on operations with the with the platoons and um, yeah yeah he was uh interestingly though um uh, uh this was only a connection that i recently made when i was in iraq in uh 2007 that we had been uh in an ambush uh in al ambar province and uh the we were uh, uh, kind of cut off from uh the fob the, the and uh we were desperately trying to get uh a QRF to come uh, to our aid. And there was a, a Marine officer uh, who jumped in a Humvee. Uh, he got another Humvee to follow him. And he drove to our position up what, you know, this road that we had, you know, known to be IED Alley. We'd never seen anybody drive up that road and not get uh, IED'd. Uh, he, you know, knew that Americans were in trouble and he drove up to to our position to to help us out. Hmm. And it happened to be Owen West being West's son. Wow. Small <laughs> yeah, world. Small world, yeah.
0: All right, just a couple more questions. You write that there are two types of SEALs, self sacrificers and self-promoters. Which are you? <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I, I mean I'm on a podcast, so I've never thought of myself as a self-promoter, but I suppose I am at this point. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I'm actually going to go out on a limb based on talking to you and say that you are more of a self-sacrificer, but that requires me to ask an ironic follow-up where I need you to promote a specific example of you sacrificing for the good of the team.
1: Oh, gosh. Well, this. I owe this to the teams. The teams have defined my life. They made me who I am. They've given me the mental fortitude to do the things that I've been able to do. So this is... uh, this was it was an absolute pleasure to write this book, but it was, I've always felt like the SEAL teams deserved a history like this. So this is the last ten years. I mean, I, I wrote this. You know, I wrote this for the country. I wanted to, you know, everybody to know about these people. But I, you know, I really wrote this for um, all the guys that I worked with. I want them to have this context around this institution that changed our lives.
0: And I would assume that it has been as appreciated uh, amongst your fellow SEAL team members as. It has by Admiral McRaven, who uh, provides a nice uh, quote on the cover of this book, a gentleman who I've had had the pleasure of speaking with previously on this podcast as well. All right. Last question now, Ben, since you were in the Navy SEALs and we talked about this a little bit earlier, Hell Week is obviously one of the most well-known elements of becoming a Navy SEAL. What was the most daunting thing for you in going through Hell Week? Uh,
1: yeah, Hell Week is, uh, I don't know, there's so much build up to Hell Week. Hell Week is, it's incomparably hard, but it's not, I don't know, Bud's is hard. The thing that you don't realize is all the weeks going up to Hell Week and all the weeks after Hell Week, they're really hard. I think, I think, you know, if you, if you're mentally prepared to get through Hell Week, you're going to get through Hell Week. Hmm. If you're just, uh, you know, you're expecting that this, this week is going to be miserable. Well, you're right, it's going to be miserable. But one nice thing about hell week is you don't have to wake up. You just the the misery keeps going. I think the worst part in everybody's day in buds is is that moment when you have to wake up. You got to wake up, you're leaving a nice warm bed and you realize I'm going to be miserable. I'm going to be wet, cold, sandy, chafed and just plain miserable for the rest of the day. It's really hard to get out of bed. Um and it's really hard to not quit. When when you're in hell week you don't, you never have to make that decision. You're re- there's only a couple of instances where you're sleeping and you're comfortable and, uh, it's not very long. So <laughs> <laughs> hell week is, uh, <laughs> in, in some ways hell weeks kind in that regard. So, uh, but my hell week in particular was, uh, unusual because we had, uh, uh, we had a guy, uh, actually, uh, die in, in oh. training. So our hell week was cut short. Uh, and he was, uh, he was in my boat crew and, uh, he was, uh, great guy his name was john Scott. he was the oic of our class and um think about him think about him often
0: oh i'm sorry so for was, your loss uh,
1: oh yeah i mean i it didn't i didn't know him you know it was one of those things where you know i uh I, um there's so many people that quit now week that you know you're 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 put together with people that you don't really know mm-hmm. and Uh, the relationships that you're going to have in your classes are going to mostly going to happen after hell week, because you go into hell week, you know, with a group of people that you, you know, you think you're going to be friends with forever. And, you know, you look around at the end of hell week and they're not there. So uh, this was, you know, uh, Wednesday night, Thursday morning of hell week. And, you know, uh, I'd been with him for at least twenty-four hours at that point. But, you know, I'd been with you know, in his boat crew and with him long enough to know that he was uh he was a really tough guy and uh liked him, really liked him. So yeah, very, very sad. A big loss for the the future of the teams too. So
0: Well, Ben, thank you for that answer and thank you so much for this book. I know you said you spent a decade working on it, and it's very evident that you poured your heart and soul into this chronicle. I think it's very evident in the detail of the stories that you tell, some stories going back 70 to 80 years and then also just some of the different characters that we get to meet and they're not all as amusing as uh, miles and watson but there are so many great characters in this book and i think that a long time from now the appreciation that's being shown to you for putting this historical chronicle together will uh, will not be understated thank you so much for that and thank you for the time today
1: thank you trey it's been great
0: Join me next time when I speak with particle physicist Harry Cliff on how to make an apple pie from scratch in search of the recipe for our universe from the origins of atoms to the Big Bang. Thanks to Gentleman Jesus for the intro and outro music. Hear more of his work at GentlemanJesus.com. And thanks to you for hanging out. You can listen, learn, and connect for free at BooksOnPod.com. For Books on Pod, I'm Trey Elling. Good day.